This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is number 792, the last card in the regular set of 1988 Tops, John Tudor from the St. Louis Cardinals pitcher. Fantastic. We will get to him in just a second, but we do first have some follow-up. Matt, we got a tweet from Matt Albertson on Twitter, thanks at MDAlbert88, who said that he and another Twitter user had discussed Andrew Chafin, and they believed that he resembled Chet Stedman, and he asked for our thoughts. Chet Stedman is Gary Busey's character in Rookie of the Year, and Andrew Chafin is a current pitcher for the Chicago Cubs, a relief pitcher who has been really great recently. I think at this point in July of 2021, Chafin has not given up a run since May. So he's been really great. He was involved in the combined no-hitter. While Chet Stedman had a mustache, and Andrew Chafin also has a mustache, I think that Andrew Chafin looks like if Jay Baller and Rod Beck had a child. Mm, mm. He's got some long, flowing brown hair, a, a very good 80s mustache. He's got a really good look, and I love everything about Andrew Chafin. I, I wanted to bring it up because earlier this year, Andrew Chafin was in the market for a car, and he tweeted out to Cubs fans that he was looking for an old beater car, and he didn't want to spend more than $2,000 because his truck, which is 22 feet long, is too big for the streets in Wrigleyville. So he's looking for a $2,000 car. Must be manual transmission. <laughs> <laughs> and there were a ton of good offers, including a Cubs limo. Chafin declined the Cubs limo because it was actually longer than his truck. <laughs> the car that he found was an 88 Pontiac Firebird. Oh, Yes. This is another reason why this is relevant to our conversation here. It it looks glorious. It's not even a Trans Am. It's just a your run-of-the-mill Pontiac Firebird. And Chafin looks great next to it. This is also relevant in my life, Matt, because I don't know if this is a thing that I've told you about before. When I was a bartender, I was looking for a cheap car, and I bought a 1980 Pontiac Firebird Ooh. for $1,000. Partially as a joke, and then it turned out to be like basically the greatest car I've ever owned. <laughs> what <laughs> color was it? what color was this car? It, it was blue. Andrews is bright red and eighty eight, but you know I, I'm forever chasing the days of driving around that nineteen eighty Pontiac Firebird. One day I'll get another one. It might be more than a thousand dollars. It reminds me of a song, "Bitch and Camaro" by the Dead Milkman. Nope, I'm thinking of. Silver Thunderbird by Mark Cohn. Is... Mark Cohn of Walking in Memphis fame? Exactly. I didn't know yeah. that he had other songs. Don't you give me no Buick. Son, you must take my word. If there's a God in heaven, he's got a Silver Thunderbird. <laughs> you can keep your Eldorados and the foreign car is absurd. Me, I want to go down in a Silver Thunderbird. Well, oh, Andrew man. Chafin is driving around Wrigleyville in this beautiful red Pontiac Firebird. Thank you to M. Albertson. Now we will go to our card, John Tudor. 
And David, I I think this is a really inspired choice. I would ask you why we picked John Tudor, but I think the answer is pretty obvious given the events that are going on in the world right now. And by that, I mean the Euro 2020 Soccer Championship. We're recording this on Saturday, July 10th. The final of this tournament is tomorrow, Sunday, July 11th, between England and Italy. And so, of course, given so many of the teams that have factored into this tournament and what's going on, digging into the Tudor line of kings and queens is exactly what we should be doing. From Henry VII, who ended up marrying his daughter to the King of Scots, you know, Scotland and England fighting to a glorious draw in this tournament. Henry VII also made peace with Spain, you know, marrying his son to Catherine of Aragon. You have Edward VI, another boy king who ends up splitting England from the Catholic Church. There really wasn't an Italy back then, but splitting from Rome is about as close as you're going to get. So it really sets up the final, you know, a good five to 600 years later. And the English team has players from both sides of the Roses rivalry. The Roses rivalry, of course, between teams in Lancashire and Yorkshire, and Calvin Phillips playing for Leeds United, Luke Shaw, Harry Maguire, Marcus Rashford on the Manchester United side. That rivalry between those teams is is known as the Roses rivalry. The War of the Roses led to the rise of the Tudor dynasty. Of course, this is all relevant to our conversation about a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, not the television program, The Tudors, which seems to be a delivery system for nudity on Showtime. (laughs) But John Tudor himself, maybe not quite the king in 1985, but a fantastic season. A, A regal season, we might say. We haven't had any Cardinals on the show since Tony Pena and none before then. John Tudor had a really interesting path to the majors. One outstanding year a good career, and an RBI baseball appearance. So we'll get to welcome Brian, our RBI baseball correspondent, back to the show. Excellent. So a lot to cover here. A royally good show, I expect. So going to the front of the card of 792. David, this is a bit of an odd look here. So we have John Tudor, left-handed pitcher. He is in mid-delivery. I say it's an odd look because it kind of looks like he's in an Olin Mills studio with just a modeled background behind him. This doesn't look like any kind of baseball stadium. Or maybe he's pitching in front of some, like a single grandstand that's got about 30 people sitting in it. And they're all seated vertically. It's very strange. Maybe it is folks in a grass field behind him at a preseason game. Because this definitely has a preseason look about it with the uniform and Mm -hmm. the people not really in a stadium behind him with kind of open air. It's very odd, but also very, you know, a little bit of a Monet look in the background. <laughs> Pointillism comes to the 1988 top set. Tudor himself it actually looks pretty good. He's lit pretty well. The bright red jersey, white pants with the red belt looks pretty good. Get the red stirrups too. I always like that. Tudor had an intense demeanor on the mound and a little bit of an odd throwing motion. Three-quarter motion to almost sidearm leading with his elbow. I, I saw it described as a chicken wing motion, and you can kind of see it there. He he leads with his elbow. Some batter said that every pitch he threw, he had the same motion, so it made it really deceptive, and he was a crafty left-hander in the traditional sense. Flipping to the back of the card, 
So here we have John Tudor, pitcher, six feet, 185, left-handed thrower and batter, drafted in the third round by the Red Sox, January 1976, and acquired by the Cardinals by trade, December 1984. Born February 2nd, 1954 in Schenectady, New York, in a home in Peabody, Massachusetts. His father was an engineer for GE, and they moved shortly after John's birth to Massachusetts. He grew up in Peabody, Massachusetts. Notable residents include John Proctor, Giles, and Martha Corey, who were victims of the Salem witch trials, and also wrestler Matt Bloom, who at one point had 28 body piercings and used the name Prince Albert. So another connection to our royal theme here and we'll talk a little bit more (laughs) about matt bloom later with wrestling correspondent brian john went to peabody high school he also played hockey and basketball growing up he wasn't heavily recruited out of high school ended up playing at north shore community college where he was a team mvp but still this is a pretty low level of competition and not really on anybody's major league baseball radar He wrote a letter to Georgia Southern University to ask them if he could walk on to the baseball team. They allowed him to do so, and he ended up being really good. He was a criminal justice major and also started for the baseball team after walking on. He went 6-2 and in 10 games with a 1.46 ERA and got drafted after that first year at Georgia Southern. So a pretty impressive rise in prominence. He was drafted by the Mets in the 21st round, but he didn't sign, and he was planning to go back to school for his senior season, finish up his criminal justice degree. He then goes to play in the Cape Cod League over the summer, and there he impressed Red Sox scouts, so his hometown team, and they ended up picking him in the January 2nd secondary draft, which is why it says Red Sox number three special on the card. He starts in the minors and gets through single, double, and triple A in two years, starting as a relief pitcher and then eventually as a starter. And by 1979, he's 25 and knocking on the door of the majors. He was the last man cut out of spring training and ended up as a starter at Pawtucket. When he's at Pawtucket, his manager is Joe Morgan, and we've talked about Morgan magic in the Jody Reed episode. Joe Morgan pitches him in an exhibition game against the parent club against the Red Sox and the Red Sox players thought that he was a highly rated prospect. But apparently around this time, Tudor had gained kind of a negative reputation. The Paw Sox pitching coach was former Dodgers pitcher Johnny Padres, who allegedly called John Tudor gutless. And the reputation was that John was afraid to pitch inside, that he complained about his arm being sore His teammates said none of this was true, but apparently this gutless reputation made it to the press, made it through the Red Sox organization, and that was his reputation. John Tudor, for his part, said he learned nothing from Johnny Padres. He said, I was not a prospect, so he didn't waste his time on me. But he had something that Joe Morgan thought was good, that the Red Sox thought was good enough, and he earned a short call-up in 1979. He was inconsistent in a few starts. He got his first win in a rain-shortened game in September, and he, at this point, was having some recurring shoulder pain, which had started back when he was in college. Moving in in 1980, he starts the season back in AAA, but gets called up in June, and plays in 16 games, 
Pitched pretty well. Had an 8-5 and five record with a 3.02 ERA. You know, at this point, he's 26 years old, but getting a little bit more established with the Major League team. 1981, the strike season was a little bit of a down year for John, but he went to winter ball, had a successful run in the Dominican League. According to John, he was, he said, 6-2 and two or 7-2 and two with an ERA around 2, but he said that he left his calculator back buried in the snow in Massachusetts. <laughs> so getting into 1982, then starts the streak where Tudor is having five seasons of 30 starts or more. They just won't all be with the Red Sox, but he's left the minor leagues behind at this point. In 82 and 83, he's... One of the better pitchers on this Red Sox team, his combined 26 wins those two seasons were the most among Red Sox pitchers for those years. But the Red Sox were not really in contention in those seasons for the AL East title. They were third in 1982 and dropped down to sixth and were under 500 in 1983. But this experience at Fenway Park would help him later in his career. Whitey Herzog said to pitch at Fenway and succeed as a lefty, you've got to pitch inside to right-handed batters. And for his career, John didn't really get lit up by righties. He gave up a 253 average, 381 slugging versus 226 and 341 versus lefties. So one would expect that righties would hit him really well, particularly in a good hitter's park for right-handed hitters like Fenway. But he learned to pitch against them, which would help him out when he moved to more friendly pitchers' parks. At the end of 1983, the Red Sox have pretty decent pitching lined up for the coming up season. They have Bruce Hurst. They have Oil Can Boyd, who we've talked about on the show before. Dennis Eckersley, who we've also talked about. And Roger Clemens on the way up. So the Red Sox decide to make a trade. They traded John Tudor for Mike Hitman Easler who I'm excited to talk about at some point. Easler went on to have one of his best seasons, hitting 313 with the Red Sox. And Tudor had a similar season to the ones that he'd had in Boston. He was 12-11, and 11, 3.27 ERA. But that record is deceptive. The Pirates, as we've discussed in the Tony Pena episode, were pretty bad offensively. In nine of John's losses, the Pirates scored two or fewer runs. So he was not getting any run support in that one season in Pittsburgh. Yeah, in fact, a good quote here for a sports writer in Pittsburgh talked about John Tudor, who ended up leaving the the Pirates that season, saying he served the Pirates well, winning 12 and losing 11 for a team that could not hit, could not run, could not play defense, and showed it by finishing last. And John Tudor even said, the the only team in Major League history to lead the league in pitching and finish last. I I could not figure out if that was actually the case. I tried to figure it out, but I'm going to trust John Tudor on this because we know that those 80s Pirates teams were not great. And that takes us to our This Way to the Clubhouse. John Tudor was traded by the Pirates to the Cardinals with Brian Harper for George Hendrick and Steve Bernard, December 12th, 1984. George Hendrick was a very good hitter. Pirates picked up a good bat, and the Cardinals picked up a good left-handed pitcher. Tudor was asked if he was disappointed to be traded away from Pittsburgh, and he said, once you get traded away from home, which for him was Boston, after that, everything else is pretty easy. He did say, I'm going to miss the parrot. Well, I don't, is that a cocaine reference? (laughs) Potentially. I can relate, you know, missing the mascot. I was going to say, we haven't talked about Nazo no Sakana in a while. I I miss the mystery fish. (laughs) 
We will have more news about him this summer, David, uh, rest assured. He is, the mystery fish is making waves (laughs) all the time. Making waves in in St. Louis was John Tudor. Well, actually, it took him a little while to get acclimated. In his first 10 games, he went 1-7 with a 3.74 ERA. And in that 10-game stretch, his team was 1-9. So he had a little bit of bad luck. But he also had a problem with his pitching motion. He got a call from a high school and college friend, Dave Betancourt, who would watched him on TV and said that he noticed Tudor had always had a pause in his delivery. And he'd keep his leg up for a split second before moving toward the mound. This call reminded him, and so he worked on it, got that pause back in his delivery. He said, I call it my gathering point. It seems like a silly thing, but it's an important part of my delivery. I just went out there with the intention of trying to get myself back to where I wanted to be. I just hope a little change makes a big difference. And it really did. The hesitation in his delivery helped set him, but also threw off the batter's rhythm and he ended up going 20-1 and one with a 1.37 ERA the rest of the season. A truly amazing run that he went on. And one that led the Cardinals to the playoffs and then the World Series. They ended up winning that division by three games. The only loss was in July against the Dodgers. Tudor gave up three runs in five innings. Fernando Valenzuela had a shutout. In that run, he had 10 shutouts including three in a row while the Cardinals were in the heat of a pennant race against the Mets. That included a September 11th game where Tudor faced Doc Gooden. They both threw nine shutout innings. Gooden was taken out, and Jesse Orozco gave up a home run. Tudor got a 10-inning shutout win. Oh, man. There was another game where he threw 10 shutout innings and didn't get the win. He was just a machine. And watching the end of that September 11th game against Doc Gooden... The announcers made a good point. John was transitioning still from the AL pitching at Fenway to St. Louis. And not only was Bush Stadium a good pitcher's park, but the defense behind him was amazing. He had Ozzie Smith. He had Willie McGee. He had a really great team behind him. And that also probably saved him some runs. The Cardinals do end up winning the division with 101 wins. John ends the season with a 21 and 8 record, 1.93 ERA and 10 shutouts. It is an amazing season, eighth best pitching war season of the 1980s and the second best ERA plus of the 1980s. Truly this stands out on the card. And I remember as a kid seeing this and you just see this 1.93 ERA and that's like all-time great level ERA. Unfortunately for John He didn't win the Cy Young that year, and he also wasn't mad about it. When he was asked if he deserved the Cy Young, he said, how could anyone even think that I deserve to win the award over Dwight Gooden? All his stats are better than mine. I don't want to get into that kind of thing. And John was right. (laughs) Dwight Gooden has one of the 20 best wins above replacement seasons ever. And if you look at that, the images of all of those 20 guys on Baseball Reference there's only one picture that's in color. The rest is like old Hoss Radborn and Walter Johnson and Babe Ruth and Pud Galvin and all these like, you know, ridiculous old timey names. And then Dwight Gooden. He went 24 and 4 with a 1.53 ERA. So as good as John Tudor was, 
Dwight Gooden was markedly better. The only two things that that Tudor bested Gooden on that year were shutouts and whip. But Gooden was just ridiculous. John Tudor's 10 shutouts, since 1920, only 10 guys have accomplished that. And those names include Bob Gibson, Sandy Koufax, Juan Marichal. So just a fantastic season for John Tudor and for this Cardinals team. So they enter the playoffs in the NLCS versus the Dodgers. Tudor gets the start in game one, gives up three earned runs, and takes the loss again to Fernando Valenzuela. But he gets another shot in game four, down 2-1 in the series against the Dodgers. He gives up one run in seven innings, and the Cardinals end up with a blowout win. That evens up the series after four. And the Cards end up winning the NLCS in six games and get to the World Series in the in the cross-state clash against the Kansas City Royals. John got the start in game one, and he earned the win away at Kansas City. Takes the mound again in game four and pitches a nine-inning, five-hit shutout. This series, this 85 series, is best remembered for Don Denkinger's blown call in game six. If that game had ended differently... You have John Tudor with a 2-0 and record in the World Series, having given up one run in 15-plus innings. He might have been the MVP of this series for a Cardinals World Championships team. Unfortunately, after that blown call, goes to a Game 7, and John Tudor, before that game, in which he was scheduled to start, says, I know I'll pay the price forever, but I may only be here once in my life. It's worth whatever price I have to pay. He had pitched 28 innings in the two weeks prior, and his body just didn't hold up. His shoulder didn't make it through the third inning of that game. He gave up five runs. The Royals won 11 to nothing and won the World Series. It's tragic to pitch that much and feel like you have to do one more when your body just cannot do it. He proved the critics wrong who had said he was gutless or that he didn't have the courage or didn't care enough. He obviously sacrificed his body quite a bit to put himself out there one more time when he had pitched that much already. Yeah, he was well over 300 innings at this point. And the implication that he didn't care or didn't have passion, he proved that to be BS. He cared a lot. He punched a fan after the game. Whoa, whoa. No, 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 not like that. Like a, an okay. actual metal fan, not a... Oh, that's not... That's worse. <laughs> Is it worse? It's worse for your hand. Yes, it's worse for your hand. It's worse for your hand. He, he needed five stitches, so he... That's why you punch someone in the belly. <laughs> that's a... That, you don't need stitches after that. Yeah, don't punch walls either. And... Mm -mm. John admitted later that he did not handle the publicity or the pressure of this series particularly well. Earlier in the World Series, he called a reporter a schmo and also asked a reporter, do you want me to take a swing at you? (laughs) Not great. Not great. So punching a fan, losing Game 7, not a great way to end a fantastic year in 1985 he later apologized to the reporters for his actions but the pressure of that and and the the entirety of that season seems like really weighed on him by by that game seven so disappointing end to the 1985 season but still making the world series after an excellent year 1986 a good season not quite as 1985 line but 
Looking at the card, 13-7 and seven record, 2.92 ERA, still very good. Looks like he had more shoulder issues. He only had 219 innings, not 275. He was now throwing 80 to 82 miles per hour, down from pitching in the 90s in his early career. And he was shut down in September and had shoulder surgery in January of 1987. He came back in 1987 from surgery. Three starts in April of 1987. Two and one with a 6.06 ERA. Then something terrible happened. When we talked about Tony Pena, we were looking at the team leaders card. After I posted that, somebody said, what happened to John Tudor in 1987? Because we know the Cardinals make the World Series in 87, but if you look at the team leaders in wins, it was, I think, three players who had 11 wins. Everybody knows John Tudor's the ace of that staff. He didn't have 11 wins. In April, Tudor was not pitching in a game against the Mets. He's sitting on the bench. The Mets catcher, Barry Lyons, goes sprinting for a pop foul. Cardinals players are at the top of the dugout yelling, no play, no play. But Lyons goes sliding into the dugout right into John Tudor and broke his leg. So Tudor's in a cast for two months. For his part, he didn't really feel like Barry Lyons did anything wrong. He said, what's done is done. I tried to catch him. If I wasn't there, I don't know what would have happened to him. So John Tudor takes an injury, maybe prevents Barry Lyons from having an injury, but he ends up sitting out for a few months and doesn't return until August. Yeah, only 13 more starts, and the team went 12-1 and during those starts, so he helps contribute to the Cardinals winning the NL East, and they end up winning by three games. We've talked about these playoffs before against the Giants first, starting and taking a loss in Game 2, giving up homers to Will Clark and Hackman Jeffrey Leonard. And then starting game six, pitching much better, seven shutout innings, and the Cardinals win one nothing, Make the World Series. John gets a win in game three at Bush Stadium, is back on the mound in game six at the Metrodome. Unfortunately, he gives up two runs in the first inning. The Cardinals come back to lead four to two. And in the fifth inning, Tudor gets pulled without getting an out. He gave up a home run and four total earned runs in that inning. The Cardinals lost that game 11-5 to and then lost Game 7 as well to lose the series. So a tough way to end 1987, another year making the World Series but losing it, but did earn John Tudor a spot in RBI Baseball. And so now we will go to the RBI Baseball Corner with Brian. And we're back in the RBI corner with Brian. Brian, welcome back to the show. And this week we're talking about John Tudor and the St. Louis Cardinals. Great to be back. And as we've discussed previously in the Tony Pena episode, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals aren't a great team in RBI baseball, but they're a very specific type of team. They're a run manufacturing team. Have a lot of speed. They've got Vince Coleman, Ozzie Smith, Willie McGee, Tommy Herr. And the way to win with the Cardinals is through pitching and speed. They're kind of a classic 80s AstroTurf team where you slap the ball around and try to advance bases. Only one power bat in Jack Clark. You can definitely win with the Cardinals, but it's very different than playing with powerhouse teams like Boston or Detroit. And so how is John Tudor as a pitcher? 
John Tudor is excellent. The first thing I'll note is that his stats on screen, uh, as we've talked about with other players, don't match up with his real-life stats. He's shown as having a 128 ERA. Even during his great run in 1985, that was not an ERA that John Tudor had obtained. That said, he's great. He pitches like a guy with a 128 ERA. On the 1988 Tops podcast, we tend to focus on guys who maybe aren't the highlights of RBI baseball, like Tim Tuffle or Steve Lombardozzi. But John Tudor, on the other hand, you know, he might be the very best pitcher in RBI baseball. He single-handedly makes the Cardinals a viable team because you can pitch deep into games with him and he can get people out. In terms of why he's great, well, have like four things. The first is that he's a lefty. There's only six lefty starters in RBI baseball, and he might be the best of them. So you can use him to dismantle the lefty heavy lineups like Detroit and the New York Mets. He has tremendous movement to both sides of the plate, tied for the third best left movement in the game behind Fernando Valenzuela and Mike Kruko, so he can throw the ball in and out to both righties and lefties. He doesn't throw hard like Juan Berenguer of Berenguer Boogie fame, but he does throw hard enough, so you can mix up speeds occasionally. And lastly, he's needed. If he was in the Tigers or the Red Sox, you know, he'd just be another great player. But with St. Louis, he's the real star because you have to rely on him to pitch deep into games, limit the runs from the other team, and then use your speed to win on the bases. You said that he's not as fast as Juan Berenguer. Around this time, Tudor was maybe throwing in the 80s, maybe even under 80 at some points. He definitely throws harder than that in RBI baseball. He gets up into the high 80s, low 90s with his fastball. The big thing is that he throws hard enough to keep hitters off balance, and then you can use movement in and out. So you are taking more of a finesse approach that's redolent of how John Tudor actually pitches. Brian, earlier we talked about Peabody, Massachusetts' own Matt Bloom. And as their wrestling correspondent, do you have any thoughts about Matt Bloom, who wrestled under the name Prince Albert? Absolutely, Matt Bloom. He's not just a guy. He's not just some jobber. He's a legitimate WWE superstar, as they like to say in their branding. Uh, Matt Bloom came in in 1999 or so. He became part of a fairly unfortunately named tag team called TNA for Testin Albert, as Matt Bloom was wrestling <laughs> under the name Prince Albert. That was kind of the breakout vehicle for Trish Stratus, who'd come on to become a WWE Hall of Famer. He was in the company for probably, I don't know, six or seven years, even had a WrestleMania match with The Undertaker, which is always a big highlight, although he was paired with the big show, Paul White, in that match, because I think Albert on his own was perhaps not a big enough star. Had a huge career in Japan and came back in 2012, brought back as kind of a henchmen through this weird samurai gimmick called Lord Tensai. The authority figure at the time was John Laurinaitis, who brought him in as this Lord Tensai character, where he feuded briefly with Paws Chicago supporter CM Punk and Fast and Furious 9 star John Cena, or John Cena, John Dinner, for any of the Italian fans who are listening. <laughs> um, so he... That, that gimmick didn't quite connect. That was kind of a 1980s gimmick with this big robe and face tattoos didn't really work for the audience in 2012 in what was known as the reality era. So they repackaged him as a comedy act where he was called Sweet Tea and would come to the ring dancing in this kind of funk getup that I'm sure Thad Bosley would appreciate along with the Funkasaurus. So they would come to the ring and they would do their dance and they would do their routine. And they had a comedy act called Tons of Funk for about a couple of years there across the mid-2010s. Funk is on
Wait, I have I have a podcast called Tons of Funk. What a coincidence. And since that time, Matt Bloom has actually been the head trainer for the developmental arm of WWE called NXT since 2015, which is actually a pretty high-profile role. So if I were to try to compare him to, say, a 1988 Topps set baseball player, I was thinking maybe he's like a Dave Magadan, you know, not a guy who's a real star, but went on to have a nice coaching career and always has a place in the game because of how well-respected he is within the game. Dave Magadan was a one-time future star's. In the 1987 top set. Dave Magadan and Prince Albert like peas in a pod. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Brian, thank you so much. And we will see you next time in the RBI Corner. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. And we're back. 1988 for John Tudor. Started like a couple other seasons had where he missed time early in the season after knee surgery and continued shoulder soreness. And when he came back, he was very effective, even if the overall record didn't look like it. He was 6-5 and five in his first 21 starts and had an NL leading 2.29 ERA. And so there's a ton of no decisions in there, 10 no decisions. A lot of those were hard luck no decisions for a Cardinals team that was not in the playoff picture, wasn't scoring enough runs, wasn't giving John the run support that he needed. The Cardinals were looking for a bat to replace Jack Clark. And the Dodgers were looking for a pitcher. And John was traded for the great Pedro Guerrero. And this was a weird star-for-star trade that you don't really see now. Right now, a selling team would turn John Tudor into prospects, not a 32-year-old Pedro Guerrero. The trade starts out okay. Tudor gets a complete game win in his first start and goes 4-3 and three with a 2.41 ERA to help the Dodgers win the NL West, and he makes the playoffs yet again. John wasn't great in the NLCS versus the Mets. He gave up four in five innings in a game that the Dodgers ended up winning, so he was let off the hook. And then in the World Series against the A's, he got the start in Game 3. He puts down the first four batters that he faced, including striking out Mark McGuire, And then he had to be pulled in the second inning with elbow pain. And so while the Dodgers won the World Series, it's probably a bittersweet victory for John as he didn't really contribute to that World Series win. And after that season and that elbow injury, John was basically like the bionic man. He was rebuilt. (laughs) He had Tommy John surgery. They also went in and removed frayed shoulder cartilage. And there were still two screws that were in his knee from the Barry Lyons incident. So he had a lot of recovery to do and a lot of comeback. And he didn't really come back until June of 1989. And that season only pitched 14 innings for the Dodgers. In 1990, he's age 36. He ends up going back to St. Louis on a one-year contract. And at this point, he's only throwing 80 miles an hour. He's still got movement and he's still got stuff. He starts the season 4-0, giving up only three runs total in those four starts. And what opposing manager Roger Craig from the Giants called a miracle. He would just change speed. I don't know what the difference is if you're throwing an 80-mile-per-hour fastball. (laughs) Right now we're looking at Shoei Otani throwing 68-mile-an-hour slow curveballs and 98-mile-an-hour fastballs. If John Tudor's throwing an 80-mile-an-hour fastball i don't know what what he's going to slow that down to tudor was less charitable in his assessment of his own performance and he said i have all these doubts storming inside me 
and they all revolve around that 78-mile-an-hour fastball. And he was really effective, and it was mostly just because of a good changeup, throwing a curveball, and being able to, I guess, moderate his pitch speed. Unfortunately, that Cardinals team was out of contention by June. There was some trade interest in John from other contenders as he was throwing a under two and a half ERA, but injuries again came up in August. He misses some time, comes back to close out the season with a start and some time in the bullpen. But he had a really good season as a 36-year-old. Ends up with a 12-4 and record. 2.40 ERA in 146 innings. And we have a note here from Baseball Prospectus. Only three pitchers age 35 or older pitched 100 innings as a starter after spending an entire season or most of a season away from the game. The other two being Burt Blylevin and Pedro Martinez. So Tudor being able to come back after this kind of extensive surgery and then start that many games is very impressive. He ends up winning the National League's Comeback Player of the Year and then promptly retires. (laughs) Yeah, I think that you could tell from some of those quotes that he is just, maybe he couldn't even figure out why he was getting people out. After that many surgeries, after probably 20 years of shoulder pain, he was done. It was time. Final stat line for John Tudor, 117 and 72, 3.12 ERA, going to three World Series and winning one of them. So it's a a very successful career. How about in retirement? Tudor moved back to Massachusetts with his wife, Gail. They had three kids. He would coach hockey and baseball. He enjoys scuba diving. This is something that he uh, learned to do growing up in Massachusetts. And he continued to do that throughout his career as one of his off-season activities. He also played in a Boston men's league as a first baseman. And he said he tried (laughs) hard not to get noticed. He's still beloved by Cardinals fans, particularly for that magical 1985 season. Just this past year in 2020, Tudor was elected to the Cardinals Hall of Fame, along with Tommy Herr and first baseman Bill White. His time with the Cardinals is particularly impressive. He had a 705 winning percentage. He went 62 and 26 with a 2.52 ERA. Both that winning percentage and that ERA are records for Cardinals who pitched at least 750 innings. John Tudor himself says, I tell people all the time, 200 more wins and I catch up to Bob Gibson. Tudor seems very active. When he got the news that he was voted into the Cardinals Hall of Fame, he was recovering from a saw incident that severed a tendon in his right hand. So still an interesting guy, John Tudor. Yeah, as we close the book on him, it's been interesting how people responded to his attitude and demeanor had such an effect in how his career started and progressed. What did you think after looking into it more? Early in his career, when he's pitching at AAA, Joe Morgan tells him, you've got a chance to pitch against the Red Sox. And Tudor's response was, I don't care if I pitch against them or not. And it seemed like he had this attitude Whether he gave up a home run, whether he got a strikeout, his attitude was, all right, give me the ball, I'll throw it. I don't quite get the gutless. Maybe it was that they didn't respond well to him being injured, and so it wasn't viewed as gutsy and that he wasn't going to say, give me the ball, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to you know, throw till my arm falls off. 
which he was willing to do, as he showed when he played for St. Louis. He seems funny and thoughtful in some of these interviews, but on the mound, he was very intense. So this other side of him rubbed some coaches like Johnny Padres the wrong way, but pitching as a lefty at Fenway takes guts. Throwing inside and throwing 275 innings for the Cardinals, that takes guts. Going to the mound game seven when you know that you have nothing left to give is gutsy. And Whitey Herzog said, nobody ever did more with less than my favorite cranky Yankee, John Tudor. When you can't crack 85 on the radar gun, maybe a foul mood and a chip on your shoulder are just the right ticket. John himself said, there was nothing special about me. There really wasn't. I just threw the ball over the plate and I let people play. I tried to give my best effort all the time, but there were a couple of big times when it wasn't good enough. And he seems disappointed that he wasn't able to get across the finish line in St. Louis. He really seemed to enjoy his time with the Cardinals, so much so that even at the end of his career, he went back when he had nothing left to give and and pitched with the Cardinals. I thought John Tudor came across pretty likable in all the interviews that I was reading of him, even if he called a reporter a schmo. (laughs) Yeah, if that's the worst someone calls a reporter, that's pretty good in my book. So I agree. I think that he got a bad rep from a coach early on, and it's not fair. And John obviously was able to prove them wrong in, in a lot of ways. So a good story. Thank you for this. And thank you to Brian for joining us. And if you're walking in Memphis with your feet 10 feet off the beal, we'd love to hear from you. We are on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.